today I wanted to talk about something that was on my heart from John chapter 2, um, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to, as is our custom, I will read that to us and then we'll, we'll pray together. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the, and when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother, who apparently was used to this sort of thing from Jesus, <laughs> said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. <clears throat> and Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw, out, uh, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn, it, drawn the water, they knew. <clears throat> then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Lord God, would you bless your word as we explore it and as we listen to your voice through it? Would you bless our hearts and give us ears to, to hear what you're saying and eyes to see what you're showing to us and what you're telling us? Would you minister to your people? Would you meet every person here where they need to be met? Or do you know every person here intimately the things they're struggling with the things that they don't know about or the blind spots in their hearts and minds you know the whole thing you see us all so Lord I pray that you would speak as only you can through this we believe this is your word to us we're listening Lord thank you God for teaching us thank you for leading us thank you for guiding us Thank you for what you do. We love you. You're our shepherd. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, one of the things, if you come to our hermeneutics class, one of the things that you will learn to look for and look at while you're studying, in the, studying the Bible is something called literary context. Literary context. And that is the way the, author, the way the author chooses to write his material. That includes syntax, grammar, specific wording, things like that. But it also pays attention to the order in which the author chooses to order his material. Okay, so why, if you, know, you go to write a book or you go to work on something and you've got all your material, there comes the point for any writer that would say, okay, now how am I going to order this? How am I going to string this together in the way that's going to impact my audience the most? What do I want them to learn from this? And in this gospel, John chooses to record this miracle 
a miracle that none of the other gospels record, by the way, or none of the other writers chose to put in their telling. And he chooses it as the first miracle that he's going to write about. And um, I think the reason this is important is because first impressions are important, right? In other words, John is thinking, what's the first impression I want my audience to have of the ministry of Jesus? What's the first impression I want my audience to have of this person and his dynamic ministry in people's life? How do I want to do this and why? How do I want them to be exposed to Jesus for the first time? And I got to be honest, when I first began studying this passage years ago and working on this for a sermon I was doing, it really stumped me. It was a, this one was, this one struggled, you know, you know, you'll hear me say, um, studying the Bible is like wrestling. Some opponents are easier to, to pin than others. And this one fought back. This one was hard. I mean, when you read it, um, it's a cool story, um, but at first glance, it's just a cool story. You kind of come out thinking, okay, great. What does it mean? What's the point of it? I don't want to sound disrespectful, but you kind of say, now what? Or so what's it for? It's like telling um, like ghost stories or comparing experiences with friends. You know, when you, I, one time I did this and one time, oh, that reminds me of this time. And it's fun and it's great, but it's, what does it mean? What's it really for? At face value, this story looks like a miraculous solution to a mere social embarrassment. That's what it looks like. A miraculous solution to a, a, a social um, no-no, a wedding that's about to go south. I mean, if you were inventing the life of Jesus, you would want to talk about when you're presenting his first miracle, the inaugural miracle, so to speak. You'd want it to be extremely dramatic and quintessential. Any leader of a new movement, when they go to make their first presentation, any president that comes into office, they have their inaugural speech, and it's an important speech. It's a big one. And everyone's paying attention because what it's doing is it's outlining the way they're going to lead. It's outlining what's important to them, what their philosophy and leading will be, how they will guide their people. So everyone's paying attention because it gives a glimpse of what, what this administration is going to be like. Well, this was his inaugural sign, according to John. And most respected scholars agree that this is proof in and of itself that it must be true. Because if you were inventing a biography for Jesus Christ, you would never start with this one. This would not be the one you would pick. I mean, why not raising someone from the dead to start it out? You know what I'm saying? Or why not walking on water or calming the storm? All of those things seem a lot more, okay, wow, his power and all of those things. Why not have him restore sight to the blind as, the, as his introduction to the world? That if we were making a series about Jesus, that would probably be the first one that we'd start out with. Instead, what you have here is not a very big deal, seemingly. A party runs out of wine. In the grand scheme of things, so what? But the phrase in verse 11 <clears throat> kept bugging me <laughs> and bothering me and drawing me back to it. Let me read it to you. It says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs, different word for miracle, 
Miracle is dynamis in the Greek. Um, It's the first of the signs through which he reveals his glory. See, it wasn't just a miracle. It was a sign. This wasn't just a miracle, but it it was the miracle that Jesus chose to be his first. And John is telling us that it was a sign. Jesus was telling us something through this. So I can't just dismiss it. I can't just go, cool, son of God showing off at a wedding, great. I can't, I can't do that. No, he's saying, why? Why did Jesus pick this miracle? Why did he do it this way? Why did he introduce himself this way? What does Jesus want us to know about him from this story, from this sign? And as I began looking closely at it, <clears throat> began reading and studying and various scholars and commentators and all of that, I started to become convinced that this is, this is actually a parable. It's like a living story that he's walking out. Um, in this story, it's, it's an acted out picture of all that Jesus is and all that Christianity is. It began to blow my mind a little bit. Everything is here. Everything, about, everything you'd ever want to know about Jesus, everything you'd ever want to know about Christianity is right here. It has what he came to do. It has um, how he came to do it, the cost he's going to spend to do it. It has what he's bringing to offer to the world. It shows that. It also shows how we can get it, how we can get in on it. It has everything. It's all right here in this little seemingly insignificant story. It's right here. Let me show you. Let me, let me, let's, um, let's dig in in verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who drew the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests had had too much to drink, but you've saved the best until now. Now, um, the, the term master of the, bank, of the banquet, um, arch, arch, let's see, it's archetitrikalos. It's the only time you'll ever see that word in the New Testament. It's nowhere else. It's right here. And it means head steward. That's what it means. Essentially, This guy's role is close to what we would call like a master of ceremonies, a host of the party. It was this guy's job to preside over the pace of the party. And you you know, when you pick someone for that role, you need a certain kind of personality, someone that can um, keep a party going at a certain pace and according to a certain schedule, someone who's fun, who can keep the energy moving, um, someone that's relatively tireless, an extroverted person, that's what you're looking for. But culturally, this person had to be the life of the party. Um, They had to have the right flow, the right rhythm, and the party to go in the right place. They're the ones guiding, keeping the entire party on schedule and taking care of people's needs. They would tell you, hey, the bathrooms are over here. The food is over here. More wine's coming out soon. We're going to do a toast. It's time to do this. It's time to do that. Now, what you need to understand here is that this party for this poor master of ceremonies is about to become a disaster. It's about to be 
a complete disaster. Someone did not calculate right. Someone messed up here. There was a miscalculation somewhere, and this party's about to die. So back then, weddings were events that only happened a couple of times a year. Let me show you culturally what's going on with a wedding. It was the biggest day in the lives of two people, and the entire region was expected to come. So it's not like today where we send out invitations to just a few of our, the people that we choose. It only happened once or twice a year. This was a regional festival. And everybody was in, in the region was expected to come, whether you knew them or not. And because they didn't happen often, they were huge events. They were big events, um, usually lasting around three days long, sometimes longer. Three days long. People would set up their tents People would come to stay. It was this big thing. And it was the master of the banquet's job to make sure they had everything they need. Imagine just the tireless job of this person that would have to keep this whole thing going. Um, And one of the things that was absolutely culturally necessary at a wedding in ancient times, in the first century, was wine. Wine was really important. There was actually a famous rabbinical statement that I found digging around where a rabbi said, where there is no wine, there is no joy. That's kind of what, that kind of gives us a window into the minds of the people in that culture. Wine equaled um, blessing. It equaled uh, joy. It equaled abundance. It equaled harvest. It it equaled um, celebration. It equaled victory, sometimes military victory. It was a time to celebrate. It was festive. It was joyous. And a wedding could not be a wedding without that symbol and what that meant. It was very important. So this guy, the master of the banquet, is about to have a serious, serious situation on his hands here. It's about to go really bad. This guy's in hot water, and Jesus is basically going to save the guy from, in, from having to figure this out. <clears throat> in Jesus actually being the one to provide wine for this party, he is showing us, he's showing everybody what he's actually come to do on a cosmic scale. What has he come to do? What's he showing us, do you think, by providing wine? He's coming to bring joy? Yes. He's coming to bring joy and that he is the ultimate, the cosmic, the real master of ceremonies. He's the rightful Lord of the feast. That's what he's, this is his first. This is the first impression he wants from us. So again, the question is, this being Jesus' inaugural miracle, if you would, why would he choose this one? He turned 150 gallons of water or so into the most delicious Headiest wine, that's, that's what he chooses for his first thing. Into the most headiest wine so he could transform a party into an incredible party to take this party to the next level. What does this tell us about him? First impressions, what does that tell us about him, his mission, his purpose? Why would this be his first miracle? What's he saying about himself? And the answer is that Jesus is saying, first and foremost, inaugural, first and foremost, before everything else, like Rene just said, I've come to bring joy. I've come to bring joy, cosmic joy. Cosmic joy. Yes, he came to suffer. 
Yes, he came to suffer and show self-denial. And yes, he came to be humbled. And if you follow him too, yes, you're gonna have to take up your cross daily and follow him and suffer and all of those things. That's all true. There will be plenty of self-denial and humbling and all of that in the chapters to come. But first, he wants us to see, those are just a means to an end. Here's the real end of the goal. As master of the banquet and the Lord of the feast, I have come, Jesus says. In this miracle, this is actually a parable. And Jesus is essentially saying, you know those old stories, um, those old uh, you know, Lewis penned about them, Dionysian stories of the, you know, all, the tr- the, all those mythical creatures out in the woods, you know, the fawns and all the, having some kind of a feast out in the middle of the woods and the lanterns and all of those things. That was the ancient uh, Greek view of, of real party and celebration. Jesus is basically saying, child's play. Child's play. I've come, compared, compared to what I've come to do, that's nothing. Um, <clears throat> And all the prophets said this about him. Let's look at Isaiah 25. It says, in, in that day, Isaiah prophesies, in that day the Lord of hosts will make for his people a feast of the finest meats and wine well refined. And on this mountain he will, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away every tear from all faces and your reproach and shame will be taken away forever for the Lord God has spoken. Oh, I, I'm just getting chills just reading that. Isn't that what we all long for? Let me read it again. In that day, the Lord of hosts will make his people a feast of the finest meats and wine well refined. And on this mountain, he'll swallow up death forever. A feast with all of us. Think of it. We're gonna celebrate it after, we're gonna have a little dim hint of it after church today. Think of it with all of us that we're there and we look at each other and we, and we say, we made it. We made it. Through all of it, through the wilderness, through the whole thing, through the suffering, through the ups and downs, we're here. And I see you, and I say, you're here. Jesus says, of all things I could tell you, of all the things I could show you, I'm many, 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 many things. I am, but this is the first thing. This is the primary thing. This is what I've come to do. I've come to bring festival joy, cosmic joy to the cosmos again. This is why we love him. Now, before we move on, think about most people's thoughts and impressions of Christianity real quick. Let's do this exercise. Most people, of, most people when they think of Christianity, they think of something that is rules-based, that is stuffy, regressive, restricting, boring, um, meddling in people's business, kind of uh, moral police, moral cops, things like that, something that's rote, perhaps, repetitive, um, lifeless. They don't think that Christian, usually when I ask people in Seattle what they think of Christianity, fun and joy is not the first thing that comes to people's minds. Christianity is stuck up, they say. It's kind of a suck it up, stay out of trouble, keep your nose clean, and yeah, we know it's a grind, but if you keep it up, he'll save you, and, that, and that's it. That's great. You should be grateful. Is that Christianity? Some of us compartmentalize uh, because of this, that this is the church world, and then I've got my other life out here where I get to have fun. 
And I come to church to be holy and follow the rules and get my sins forgiven and all of those types of things. But we outsource fun to somewhere else in the culture. This sign, though, this first impression of Jesus, this sign is in direct opposition to that impression. You can reject Jesus for a lot of things, but do not do it unintelligently. Here, Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the feast. I've come to make the world run over with wine. That's what he's saying. There are reasons to reject Jesus, but fun or joy is not one of them. That's what I think the first thing we need to learn here. He makes 150 gallons of, of, of choice wine, the best wine, and he's basically saying, this is who I am. This is what I've come to do. But secondly, he also shows us how it's, what, is, what it's gonna take to bring it. What it's gonna pr- take to bring it. Everything's here, not just what he came to bring, but what it's going to cost him to bring this wine. Like every good wedding, there's a little bit of everything here. There's a little bit of every emotion. There's joy, but there's also some other weird emotions. You know, weddings are, are um, weird. Mary comes to him with this very reasonable request when the wine runs out at a party, then back then, it was the end of the party. It was, it was the sign of not blessing, of God not being for it. So it's a very serious social thing and religious thing. It's, a, it's about to be a serious blunder. So she comes and she says to him, they have no wine. And it's not unimportant back then, and she knows his power because she's seen it at this point. Mary knows who Jesus is. The angel told her who Jesus is. Mary knows this about him. She knows he can do something about it. And secondly, she knows his love. She knows his concern. She knows his character. By the way, side note, why was Jesus even invited to this wedding? This is before he's done any miracle before he's known as a rabbi, as a teacher, as a a miracle worker? Why was Jesus and his disciples invited? The only answer is because he's a fun guy to have around. Someone, when they were thinking who to invite, they thought, oh, we gotta invite Jesus. Okay? It's, It's amazing. And she knows this about him. But look, he gets a little salty here. Verse four, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Woman, why are you doing this right now? My hour has not yet come. The NIV translation is trying to soften it a bit. If you have an NIV, you'll hear it'll say, dear woman. <laughs> it's not there in the Greek. It's not there. It's gune. That's woman. It's, it's, it's blunt. It's, he, he doesn't say mommy. He doesn't say, oh, ma. He says, woman, why are you doing this right now? He's pretty salty here. Why are you involving me? My time has not yet come. Now, this is both harsh and confusing when you get to understand what he's saying. She says, can you do something about this problem, please? And he says, my time has not yet come. Now, because of this phrase, time, or some of your translations might say, my hour has not yet come, this is a literary device used by John. In our hermeneutics class, we talked about the difference between Um, our impositions on the scriptures, um, in particular, chapter breaks, right? Uh, In the original, there is no chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four. That's our best effort 
to organize the scripture in a way where it flows. But what we need to keep in mind is that the authors themselves had their own mechanisms to make things flow. And here in the book of John, he's using this phrase, our, 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 over and over and over again as a literary mechanism, a literary tool that keeps the story flowing towards its, towards its end goal. It's like, it's like getting into a river with a current. And he's using, my hour has not yet come, my hour has not yet come, to move you forward through the story. This is the first time he says it in a series, I think, of seven times that, Jesus is, uh, that it's on Jesus' lips and one in John's lips. Um, because of this, my hour has not yet come, I think that this wedding has got Jesus thinking about something that's troubling to him because of what the word the hour comes to mean. This, this word hour and time starts to grow and develop into something really ominous in the book of John. Years ago, I used to think that Jesus was just saying, I'm not ready to do a miracle yet, mom, you know, or something like that. Um, and maybe you've heard it taught this way. But then he turns around and he does a miracle. That's confusing. He basically says, no. And then he does it. And we can't treat Jesus the way we treat ourselves. Yeah, you know, we do that all the time, right? We say no, and then we say, okay, fine. You know, <laughs> we do that. But we can't say that about Jesus because this is the greatest, this is the greatest leader of the biggest movement of the world. I mean, this is this is God incarnate. This, everything he's doing is intentional. It doesn't really fit for him. So we've got to start asking what. What is, what's, re what's really going on here? What does Jesus really mean by the hour? Again, if this miracle is a picture of the whole thing, meaning who Jesus is and what he's come to do, then this wedding, this wedding, I would propose to you, and I think I can prove it to you, this wedding represents something hurt in Jesus. It represents Jesus' own wedding feast. What? Let me explain. The Bible says that all of history is moving towards one event. Did you know that? All of history, where we're going right now, we're all heading towards one final event. All of existence will culminate in one sacred event. What is it? Judgment? No. Heaven? What's that? The marriage supper of a feast. A wedding feast that the Bible in Revelation 19 and 21 called the marriage, or in 19 and 20, called the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's right. All the prophets wrote about this long ago. I read you an excerpt of it already. They wrote that the God of the Bible does not simply want to relate to us as a king does his subjects, you know, people to rule. The prophets said that he doesn't want to relate to us only as a shepherd relates to sheep. They use that metaphor too. He doesn't just want to relate to us as a father relates to children. They use that metaphor also. But overwhelmingly, the greatest metaphor that the prophets use, we are told again and again in the Old Testament that God wants to relate to us the way a husband relates to a wife. He wants to love us and know us and unite with us profoundly the way a husband and a wife do. Therefore, all throughout the Old Testament, God continually characterizes himself as the bridegroom. The bridegroom. He's the bridegroom of the people who give themselves to him as a bride does to a husband. And we know that Jesus took this into his own consciousness. We know this. 
He says he, he embodied this. He took this into his own identity, into his own frame of mind. In the book of Matthew, let me give you an example. In the book of Matthew, when someone asked him, hey, Jesus, why don't your disciples fast? How come John's disciples fast and your disciples don't fast? Do you remember Jesus' answer? He said, do the friends of the bridegroom fast when his friends are still with them? See, I'm the bridegroom, Jesus says. And if you go to the end of chapter three in this particular book, in John, John the Baptist is told. Remember what John the Baptist is told? John, we have a problem here. Everyone's leaving our ministry and going to Jesus's. That's a problem. And remember John's response? He says, of course they are. The bride is for the bridegroom. John got it. John the Baptist got it. And at the end of the book of Revelation, the gospel writer John, same guy, by the way, describes for us what, uh, what I think Jesus is thinking about in this wedding. Let me read it to you. This is Revelation 19 and 21. Are you ready? This is John, the same John that wrote, wrote this gospel, also writing Revelation. He says, Then I saw the holy city, Jerusalem, coming out of heaven. How does he describe the city? Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice that said, blessed are those invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. He's thinking about the people that will say, I give myself to you totally and completely, Jesus. On that day, that will be the consummation of all consummations. And now I think we get why Jesus is feeling that way. Have any of you single people that long not to be single been to a wedding and you're happy but you are also got a twinge of pain in there? Because you're looking forward to your own wedding someday? Jesus gets you. He gets it. This will be the ultimate union and the ultimate embrace, this cosmic embrace. And there will be a day, this wedding feast, this will be the wedding feast to end all wedding feasts. Jesus knows this, that that's his, what he's prepared for. And that's what Jesus is thinking about. But that can't be all he's thinking about though, right? Why is Jesus acting so troubled? Why is he being so abrupt why is he so clearly under a certain amount of stress at this wedding, at this joyous feast? We've got this collision of emotions here, like at a lot of weddings. She comes in, well, I think, and I, I'm hoping I can prove this to you, that he's thinking what it's going to take for him to revive wine at his own wedding feast. What it's going to take. See, that's the only, in, in my opinion, that's the only way, the only um, convincing explanation I've heard to explain what is such a clearly awkward mood in Jesus here. This is the only plausible thing. She comes in and she says, they have no wine. And the literal translation here is not, my time has not yet come. But the literal translation is, my hour has not yet come. That's really important. In the book of John, hour, Jesus' hour moves the plot forward. We've got John 7.30, John 8.20, John 12.23, and finally it culminates in John 13.1 where John says, Jesus, knowing that his hour has now come. What was that hour? 
After John 13, it's the hour of his death. It's a climax, right? That's exactly right, Kristen. It's a climax to the hour of something ominous. His hour means his death. Now listen, Mary says, look how weird this is. Mary says, they need more wine for the feast. And Jesus essentially says, I'm not ready to die yet. Can you, can you imagine if you went to somebody and said, hey, can I grab a soda from the fridge? And they said, I don't want to die right now. You'd be like, what? That's weird. And that's what this is. It's weird. It's weird. Now, that doesn't make sense unless you realize that he's looking into the future at something of which right now is a present parable, is a present story that's reminding him of the road that's in front of him and the hour that will culminate in his own death to bring wine to his own wedding. He's not talking about the wine at this wedding. He doesn't have to die to make the wine at this wedding happen. That's not hard for him. But as soon as she comes and says they have no wine, it reminds him that the only way he's gonna be able to produce wine for his wedding feast, the only way he's going to be able to, to be united with his bride is he's gonna to have to go through the hour. The hour. Like an echo, it keeps coming in with John. The hour, the hour. They couldn't kill him. They wanted to kill him, but they couldn't because his hour had not yet come, John says. And I think I can prove this to you even further within the text itself. Remember hermeneutical people being textocentric. I think I can prove it. I think it becomes crystal clear because of how he chose to make the wine. Look at this in verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, he says. Really interesting. What is ceremonial washing? Well, before the basic idea is, before the Jews could go into the temple and worship God, in other words, for the Jews to come in and worship God, you have to understand, it, in their minds, it was a return to Eden, they had been cast out east from Eden after Adam and Eve had failed. The punishment was to be cast out of God's presence. And this temple, tabernacle then became a temple, reenacted a movement west back into God's presence to enjoy intimacy and Sabbath rest and worship before in the presence of God. It was an intimate thing. We're clean enough to go into the presence of God. Well, um, before they could do that, before they could be united with God, they had to wash. Why? Well, um, it didn't actually do anything in their minds. It wasn't that they thought they had germs or they were physically dirty. It was, it was a significant, it was a sign. It was a sign and it signified that we are sinners and that we have moral impurities and we need to be cleansed in order to be embraced by Yahweh, in order to be embraced by God. Now, I don't know how much clearer it could be at this point. Now this, the passage is beginning to open up to us a little bit. We're starting to see what's going on. Jesus could have made, made wine in any other way. He's, I mean, he's Jesus. He could have done this in a, in a myriad of different ways, but he chose to do it this way. The jugs represent our separation from God. The law that accuses us of our impurity. You can't come. 
because you're dirty. You can't come because you've sinned. The jugs are now a barrier. In order to get to him, you gotta get through me, the jugs would say. You have to be cleansed first. Why? Because you're dirty. You're dirty. And the wine represents that what it would take to remove those sins and satisfy those laws, satisfy those barriers. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Last Supper? By the way, verse, okay, I started the sermon out by introducing you to something called literary context. What did I tell you? This is um, the first sign in John. So John chose to put the first sign of Jesus with wine in it. Did you know that the last sign, bookended, John chose, chooses to put, also has wine in it? Very intentional. John is, this is the ancient writer's way of showing you their rhythm and getting the plot across, not just in what they say, but in how they say it and how they're ordering their material. There's wine in it, hence the Last Supper. Remember what he said? In the Last Supper, he's with his disciples. We're gonna celebrate it today. He says, this wine... Jesus held up the cup and he said, this wine is my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. This is what cleans you to come into the presence of God. This is in the pot, the water jugs that I've turned into wine that cleanses you to come back into Yahweh's presence, not just weekly, not just yearly on Yom Kippur, but continually to live there again. When he sees wine, what does Jesus see? What would be a trauma response for something that, someone like Jesus is about to go through something? If you went through a trauma, <laughs> or you're about to go through a trauma, and you see wine, what would, it, what would immediately come into your mind? My blood. Woman, why are you doing this? My hour has not yet come. I don't want to die right now. You feel it? It's the thing that will cleanse us. It's the thing that I know I need to, I need to give. I need to bleed to have my feast. Do you see now why Jesus is reacting the way he is? Because there is no way for Jesus to think about it and what it will, and what it will be like to give his bride the cup of joy without thinking about the cup that he's gonna to have to drink in order to make this happen. See, if he's, going, if he's going to feast with us, if he's going to embrace us in his arms, we're going to drink from the rivers of his grace. If he's going to bring us this festival joy with him, then he's going to have to, he's going to, have to go through the hour. He's going to have to drink the cup of eternal justice in order to give us the cup of joy. That's the idea. That's why this is the first miracle. He's calling a shot. So picture the scene. Jesus is sitting there in the midst of all this joy, knowing that in order to get to his wedding day, he's gonna have to go through his hour. Can you understand now the, the mixed emotions going on within him? That's what he came to do. But this also tells us not just what he came to do, what he came to bring, and the cost it will take to bring it, but also it shows us what he also comes to offer. This is very important. I want to show you this. Um, in other words, it, it, it will show you what, his, what a Christian experience is like. 
If you understand him as the master of the banquet, if you understand Jesus as the bridegroom, and there, then there are some incredible implications here that are, what I will say, bodily, and I think this is very important. First, this means that he offers us as Christians a powerful experience, a bodily, full-bodied experience. Have you noticed this about the Bible? I hope you do. Why does the Bible continually characterize salvation as wine? Why is that? And why does the Bible continually talk about Christianity like a party, like a feast? My point is that the Bible is constantly, if you read through it, and I hope you do, the Bible is constantly pushing on us languages that evokes your physical senses. That's important for you to understand when it comes to a relationship with God. Let me give you a famous one, famous line in Psalms. Remember? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's a huge clue to the experience we're supposed to have as Christians. Oh, taste and see that the Lord. He doesn't say, know that the Lord is good. He doesn't say it. He could have said that, but he doesn't say it. Of course, we know that the Lord is good, but that's not all that's offered. He's not saying Christians know that the Lord is good. No, Christians have tasted the goodness of God. He says to taste it. That's different. Here's another one, Psalm 119. Open my eyes that I might behold the wonders of your law. Think of that. Open my eyes that I might behold the wonders of your law. He doesn't mean just to literally see, but he means to really see in your heart the wonders of the law. Why does the Bible insist on using sensory experience to, to um, get across the, the significance of the, of the Christian life? Why is it not enough to know God, that know that God is good? Why do we have to taste that the Lord is good? Because you are not involved in anything less than that. That's why. You're invited to an experience of God, to experience God. Listen to um, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, I couldn't say it any better than him. Here's what he says. He says, there is a difference between believing that God is holy and gracious and having a new sense on the heart of the loveliness and beauty that, of that holiness and grace. Listen to what he says. He says, the difference between believing that God is gracious and tasting that God is gracious is as different as having a rational belief that honey is sweet and having the actual experience of its sweetness. In other words, you can say, yeah, I know honey is sweet, but it's different. If you've never tasted it, it's experiential. And well, I would say it's, it's holistic. It involves knowing, but knowing to affect your entire system. Let me read to you, um, let me, let's just go back to John. John is so good at this. John gets this, I think maybe, or he brings this out in his writings maybe more than anyone else. Like if we go to, look how he opens up his epistle in 1 John. He says, um, he says, that which was from the beginning, he opened up his gospel this way, remember, in the beginning. That which was from the beginning, and look what he says which we, he's talking about him as a disciple, have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have 
touched with our hands concerning the word of life. It saddens me that there was a good portion of church history that downplayed the bodily experience of following Jesus. It's why we have so many sacraments. That's the whole point of you guys, after we're done here, coming up and actually tasting this bread and drinking this juice. Rather than, I mean, we could just teach Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead. God bless you. Believe that and go your way. But instead, we're going to say that and then we're going to actually invite your body to come up and experience it in yourself, holistically. It's important. What is Christianity? You are not invited to a sign, uh, to sign of, uh, of a series of beliefs. You know that? You're not invited, when you're invited to be a Christian, you're not invited to sign a document that says, I believe this, 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 and this. It is, that's part of it, of course. You need to believe certain things. But you're invited to a feast, ultimately. You're not invited to obey a set of rules. You're invited to a feast as Christians. You're invited to not just know about the holiness of God, but to experience, experience the roaring joy of his cosmic love for you. That's what we're invited to. So the first step in getting it from your head to your heart is that you start to hunger for it, that you believe in it, and secondly, that you start to delight in it. This is why some of the great spiritual, dis the classic ancient spiritual disciplines had something on us that we don't have, and I would invite you to reenact. Let me give you an example. Um, a Sabbath meal. A Sabbath meal is a classic ancient uh, spiritual rhythm or discipline that ancient families and communities would go through together that would reenact the cosmic feast at the end of time. And it was a time to do four things. One, stop. That's what a Sabbath is. Stop. Stop producing. Stop, uh, stop um, conniving. Stop uh, trying to harvest. Stop. Stop working. Stop. Pause. Put away your phone. Turn off the TV, stop, stop working. When my family and I do it, we have to clean the house before, we go to the store before, we get all stocked up so we don't have to go anywhere, we can stop. Secondly, you worship, you worship. Um, this is what makes it different than a family night. You are intentionally as your family, so what is worship? Worship is giving ultimate value to something. So as a family, you stop and you, you move your all, the center of your being back onto the presence of Yahweh as a family. That's what you do. You worship. You stop. You, what we do at our house, we read a verse or we ask each other questions around the dinner table. Thirdly is to delight. Delight in God. Delight in each other. Delight in some food. It's sensory. You, you want to get some good food, yummy food. Get your favorite. And, let, and don't just, you know, when, when we're not Sabbathing, what, what is food? It's utilitarian. It's a means to an end. It's a fuel so I can keep going, right? That's not what this is. You stop, and you're going to sit and enjoy it. And you're going to laugh together. And you're going to drink your favorite wine or your favorite drink. And you're going to tell stories, and you're going to 
cry and enjoy and look into each other's eyes without being distracted. You're going to hug, hold hands. It's just awesome. Stop worship, delight, and forth your content. That means you don't think about what you're going to buy. You don't think about what you need. You, you bracket that conversation for later. There are things we need. There are things we want. Sabbath is not, for that, is not that place. We bracket that conversation for later. So when, it's not a time to make big plans about your future. It's not about the time to decide, should, we, should I take the, this job or should I move over here? No, we're gonna, right now, we're going to be content with what we've got, what we have right in front of us, and thank God for it. That's the ancient practice of that. Notice how full-bodied it is. It gets the mind. It fires the mind and the emotions. It fires the will. That's your heart. You know, but uh, your actions are a reflection of your will. Okay? What you do is a window into your, in other words, your heart says yes or no before you actually do, do it in action. Okay? It attacks your, your will. It gets to your, the core of your, to your heart. It gets your body. You're, you're with people. Your body is, your body is your, is your, is your body is your repre- the representative of your soul in this physical space. That's what your body is. It represents who you are to the world. In other words, it's inherently relational. How you present yourself. How you show up in a space, you're presenting your soul, your spirit, your heart. And you receive other people's souls and spirit. And it's very intimate. At a meal, you're, you're delighting to, with other people. We're going to do this. That's why, this is why we eat lunch together, by the way. This whole thing came out of, it wasn't like one of us just said, we should have lunch after church. It was, no, there's significance to this. You worship, it's, your, it's, your, it's everything. It's a full-bodied experience. All of the spiritual disciplines, the classic ancient spiritual rhythms get at the whole person and help you grow. That's why they did it. Unfortunately, we, since the 60s and 70s, we have now, as a church in the West, completely done away with the spiritual disciplines because they were confused with a meritocracy. Uh, you know, it became a shame and honor thing. Oh, you read your Bible? You're a better Christian. <laughs> it became stuff like that, you know. Oh, you float and levitate? You know, it, like those types of things. And it made some people feel uh, discouraged and shamed, and it felt made others feel superior and I'm better than everybody else. And because it was presented as this meritocratic type of thing, it's not what it was for. It's the way of the life of Jesus as followers of Jesus that help us grow and enrich our hearts fully after him. It's a beautiful thing of God's grace. I hope I sold you on Sabbath. Be sold on that. Do it. It's wonderful. Okay. Secondly, the miracle not only shows that he, what he offers you, but he, but, um, he also offers perfect, not just powerful experience, but, but reception. How dare he say this, by the way? Anytime Jesus says that he's like something, he's saying something about us. This is like some of the Bible's well-meaning insults. Like when, when he says, I'm the shepherd, he's saying that you are a dumb sheep that can't survive without him being there. Okay? When he says, I'm the king, then we're his subjects. Every time he says something about himself, he's also implicitly saying something about us. Here he says that he's the groom. He's the groom. What's he saying about us then? 
I'll tell you what he's saying. He's saying that we are his bride. Think of when a bride comes down that aisle. You know, very, you know people at a wedding and the bride's coming down the aisle, what are people doing? They're, they're looking at her and then they're looking at him and then they're looking at her and then they're looking at him. Why? Because in that moment, I remember it for me, the room disappeared and I was fixated on what I've been waiting for for years, my bride. The only woman I want. And it's happening now. That's the picture that Jesus says, that's how I feel about you. I want you. I've come for you. I'm excited to get, in fact, I'll even go through the hour to have you. That's how he sees you now. Clothed in righteousness. He's promising complete acceptance and reception of you. Do you believe that about yourself? Do you look at yourself that way? The ancients used to write that God has veiled, he has veiled to us the significance of the human soul so that we don't get too conceited because if we knew how precious we were, how incredible, how sacred we are as image bearers of God, we might think too much of ourselves. But it explains why you are so worth saving to God. Even, in other words, the fact that you're a sinner does not make you horrible, it just makes you lost. And your groom is out to get you. He's coming for you. Have you received this? This is such a wonderful, perfect picture, and there's just two things you need to receive it. One, I'm gonna stay in the text. I'll be textocentric, because now I know you people are gonna keep me accountable for what I tell you on Fridays. Um, You have to admit that you're out. You have to come to Jesus and say, I'm out of wine, and there's nothing I can do about it. This party's about to die. My life's about to give up. I don't have it in and of myself. That's the first thing. You gotta go to him and say, I'm out. Jesus does not make a move until we're willing to say, I'm empty. Jesus knew the wine was empty and he didn't jump up and say, I'll take care of it. He waited for someone to come to him because that's an important step. It's a very important step. When you come up here, that, there's a prereq- prerequisite today before you come up. You have to realize that you need something. This is what gets us out of the wilderness. It's so powerful. Secondly, um, this is imputed to you. In other words, all this joy and righteousness and goodness, it's just incredible, the graciousness of our God, it's imputed to you. Did you notice that Jesus does not take the credit for any of this in the story? The groom takes the credit. The, the, the guy that's getting married, the, the banquet guy comes to him and says, wow, you've really done something special here. Usually we put the cheap wine out last and you've put it up first. And the groom's like, 
Thanks. That's kind of the Christian life. People are going to come up to you and say, wow, you're so peaceful. Man, the joy that's in your heart. How do I get you? You'll say, thanks. Let me show you. I, I got it by realizing I was empty. Beautiful story. Beautiful parable. That's what it's all about.